0: Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900-CHML. I want to bring in Dr. Michael Warner. He's the head of ICU at Michael garan Hospital in Toronto. A couple of significant situations here as uh, we uh, hit the 200-person 200, uh, uh, 200 mark in ICUs uh, across the province. And Dr. Michael Warner is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. Scott uh, before we get started here, take us uh, what it's take us uh, behind the scenes. what's it like for you and your staff in the ICU at this time? give us a bit of an example of what you're experiencing.
1: So you know what Scott? my, my hospital is actually one of the least affected hospitals in the GTA with COVID-19. Uh, there's actually only one patient in our ICU with COVID-19. At our peak we had 10 uh, back in wave one and that's you know on a, a denominator of about 15 to 17 beds. Uh, We do a lot of outreach into the community. We have seven pop-up centers in East Toronto, and we do outreach into schools and long-term care, which I think has helped to keep our case numbers down. But my colleagues at other hospitals, you know, Scarborough, which is just a few kilometers away, over 40% of the patients in their ICUs have COVID-19. In in Peel region, uh, they've got a a big uh, COVID load. Actually, in Halton adjoining, Hamilton, 24% of the ICU patients in Halton have COVID and about 24% in York region. So it really depends on where you are. Our specific hospital is not that affected, but we we remember uh, what it was like uh, back in wave one when uh, there was much more COVID activity locally.
0: Are these hospitals yours or those that are not hit as hard? Are they prepared to take overflow if needed?
1: That happens on a daily basis. So uh, we will receive calls to take patients from other hospitals for ICU to ICU transfers what 's interesting, Scott is is now it 's not just ICU patients but regular ward patients, so you could have someone you know sitting in a, in a ward bed with pneumonia who is removed from that bed and taken to another hospital because Hospital A is overflowing, and Hospital B has beds. And that's something that we hadn't done before for typical ward patients, but is happening now, and it's for good reason because we want to make sure that the hospitals that are overrun with COVID don't have to limit access to non-COVID-related care for their local residents. But it is disruptive to patients to have to be moved, you know, for no specific medical reason, but because of capacity issues. Uh,
0: so, uh, what about other procedures? Is it to the point where this is affecting other procedures uh, with the number hitting 200 in ICU? Yeah.
1: So. I mean, the 200 number is a number that the modelers used on November 26th to really kind of emphasize to the public that's where things could start getting really hectic. And we're at 203 today, and we were expected to be around this number about five days from now. But it really depends on the local situation. So hospitals where... There's much more COVID activity. I actually had to transiently cancel surgeries even before we reached 150 as a province overall. Then there are hospitals that are completely wide open and, and remain wide open. Back in wave one, what the government did is they shut down all elective surgeries across the province and limited access to diagnostic tests like CTs and MRIs across the board. I don't foresee that happening again. But, again, we have to make sure that access to non-COVID-related care is equitable. So, uh, you know, if, uh, if someone in Burlington, you know, if Joe Brandt is overflowing or Hamptown Science is overflowing, we want to make sure the residents in those areas still have access to uh, care for non-COVID reasons.
0: So, obviously, the most severe hospital issues are in those still in those concentrated hotspots.
1: Yes. ICU beds in Hamilton because it is a regional center uh, mm-hmm. similar to London. Uh, but Halton Region, you know, the Oakville and Burlington hospitals, they have actually more COVID ICU patients on a percentage basis than Toronto. Uh, Toronto's about 18 percent of our ICU patients have COVID. In Halton, it's it's 20 yet Toronto is in lockdown and and, uh, Halton region and I believe Hamilton are in the red or control zone. So we'll see whether uh, the government makes decisions to increase restrictions in areas that are starting to have more limited uh, healthcare capacity.
0: Your thoughts on where we will be or what can happen say between now and the holiday now and Christmas?
1: So I mean we're holding around 17, 1800 cases per day, and that, that could increase. I think it's too early to know whether the lockdown restrictions in Peel and Toronto will be efficacious in terms of reducing case numbers. But even at case numbers this high, we will continue to see an increase in hospitalizations, increase in ICU admissions, and unfortunately, con- there will continue to be deaths. I don't foresee you know, the, the hospital situation actually improving until well into the new year, so I think it will get worse before it gets better. It just depends on how bad it gets. You know, Fortunately, the critical care system of Ontario works well as a system. Uh, we all know each other. We have good information systems. We transport patients across hospitals quite commonly, and uh, so the care should be seamless, and we should be able to... Provide ICU care to everyone who needs it, but the healthcare worker, him or herself, is under a lot of stress, and, and I think burnout is an issue for healthcare workers, uh, which is an important consideration as well.
0: Uh, we saw Toronto's numbers dipping a bit today. That's not the first time that's happened. Are we seeing them? Are we starting to see these restrictions pan out for them?
1: I think it's really hard to know. I, most people look at the seven day average as being more inf- informative than a day to day number uh, change. I think what's you know unfortunate is that you know Toronto Public Health is still so overwhelmed despite their best efforts that they're not doing contact tracing outside of congruent settings. so we're not really doing what we need to do to follow up on the cases that become positive. And as you may have heard, we've started to do some surveillance testing at schools, Thorncliffe Park Elementary, which is in my catchment area, and that project was done by my hospital, that identified 4% of the students tested, uh, or the people tested, rather, were positive for COVID-19. These are people who had never been tested before because they didn't have symptoms. So I think that we actually don't know how much COVID is around, but uh, I think there's much more than we think.
0: Uh, obviously, uh, Toronto and Peel in hot spot, or rather in lockdown, and pretty much from uh, well the whole Greater Toronto Hamilton area in a red zone. How concerned are you that uh, the numbers that we're seeing in Toronto and Peel will overflow to those other areas
1: in the red zone already? Well, I think people are leaking across borders. So, I mean, if you can't if you can't shop at Yorkdale, but you can shop at Vaughan Mills, or I guess maybe for your listeners, Lime Ridge Mall. And people will do that even though they shouldn't uh, you're supposed to follow the public health advice that's for your specific jurisdiction and going around those rules because of course people have the freedom to be mobile is not in the spirit of the public health restrictions. so the government can only do so much and people have to take personal responsibility uh, covid doesn't know the difference it doesn't know that you feel the need to go shopping or get a haircut or go to the gym in a region that has less restrictions than your own uh, covid will travel with you So I think people need to buckle down and follow the public health restrictions. And we also need the government to continue to emphasize clear and transparent communication uh, so that people know what is expected of them.
0: Uh, your thoughts on the information we're hearing in regard to vaccines, obviously the UK, uh, the first to be able to administer this. Uh, it looks like approval will come sometime between now and Christmas in the rest of the advanced world. Uh, it looks here that we have a bit of a distribution and well, certainly a, pro- a procurement issue. Uh, what are your thoughts on where we are and where we could be?
1: Yeah, so vaccines, I think it's exciting. So the hardest part about creating a vaccine is creating a vaccine, and we have a number of candidates uh, for which there's been, you know, some press releases and some early data showing that they're safe and effective. The Pfizer, which has to be kept at minus 70, and the Moderna, which is minus 20, are the most likely vaccine candidates to be available in Canada. There was a federal press conference that it's probably still ongoing. I was just listening to. Mm-hmm. And I think there, you know, there are a number of challenges So the cold chain, which is that supply chain of ultra cold or you know, freezer temperature vaccines that need to move you know, across provinces, within provinces, uh, internationally, etc. That needs to be worked out. And I think the federal government has procured um, some freezers, but uh, they're not yet delivered or in place, so that needs to be figured out. We also need an information system. I mean, my kids and even me, we use these yellow vaccination cards to keep track of uh, of our vaccines, and we need a better system because most of these vaccines will require two shots and they have to be given a specific time frame, and we need a computer system to make sure that people get shots at the right time, but those are the people who mm-hmm. want the shot. Uh, and then, you know, that just leading into that next question, like, how do we make sure that people feel comfortable that the vaccine is safe and effective. Some people will never get a vaccine, that's their choice, but those people who are on the fence, especially with something that's new or novel, we need to make sure that they have the appropriate information to make informed decisions about whether it's safe and effective for them. So that's something we can start working on now from a public relations perspective, even as we wait for vaccines to reach our borders.
0: Are you concerned about the timeline and when we will actually get it?
1: I don't think that there'll be vaccines available to the entire population of Canada that who, who wants to be vaccinated until the end of 2021. We also have to keep in mind that you know if, that the experts say that we need 70% of the population vaccinated for herd immunity. These vaccines haven't been tested in anyone under 18. So if we take the 7 million people out of the population who are under 18, that means we need to vaccinate 26.6 uh, million people, which is 86% of the entire Canadian population that reach that 70%. Logistically, that's extremely challenging. And then because of vaccine hesitancy, uh, that may not actually be realistic. So there are lots of things that are in play. My hope is that the vaccines will be available and that the people who want them uh, have the opportunity to receive them in a timely manner.
0: So is it a disadvantage for Canadians if the rollout is a bit slower uh, than the rest of the world? I mean, we're certainly it certainly appears like that now. We won't know until we're actually there, I guess. Um, but, you know, are we, will that delay uh, affect Canadians much?
1: It will. I mean, there's a queuing issue. You want to be at the front of the queue with this, and we will not be at the front of the queue because we don't have domestic mass production of these types of novel vaccines available. So we have to wait in line and our position in the queue I guess is determined by powers well above me but uh, the federal government will let us know when it's our turn and then once w- within can once they're available in Canada they won't be available to everybody at once and what i heard today is that each province and territory will decide you know what rules there are to determine who gets the vaccine first second third etc uh, and that there could be some tension because the rules could be different across jurisdictions you know in one province versus another and that will be up to public debate so if you're asking me, would, would I rather a vaccine sooner? Absolutely. That would put Canada in a better position, but uh, I don't think we have a strong negotiating position uh, with this because everyone in the world is looking for the same thing.
0: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, you were talking about who gets it and what we're hearing so far, and, and I guess it seems obvious, long-term care, those that are more, most vulnerable, frontline workers. But then can you see it working down by age? I've, heur- I've, heur- I've heard that suggested.
1: Yeah, it's, it's tricky because age doesn't necessarily confer risk, you know, on an individual basis, right. maybe on a population basis it does. But, you know, I have nine year olds who are in better shape than some 50-year-olds we treat in the ICU. So mm. it's really the comorbidities you know, how many illnesses a person has. But we don't have a good way of keeping track of whether someone has two comorbidities or 10 or none. And so I think age is probably going to be one of the metrics they use because it's easiest to measure and is, it cannot be debated. Uh, but I guess we'll have to see what decision is made. But there's going to be no perfect system that is uh, you know, 100% validated for how this is distributed. But we're probably going to have to accept uh, some degree of uh, I- imperfection as we roll this out.
0: Uh, Talk a little bit more about the safety of this vaccination once it is released. Uh, Many have said, you know, we don't want it. You know, we don't want it until uh, it's proven to be actually, you know, completely safe. That being said, from what I understand... All of the uh, health authorities uh, who are involved in this around the world are pretty much getting the information at roughly the same time in stages. So uh, I guess my first question is, are, are you confident about the safety of this? And will that delay this in any way? I, I'm hearing roughly that this that Health Canada will be approving this before Christmas like most of the other uh, nations are.
1: Yeah, so Health Canada has a rigorous progr- process to approve Really, any anything that is for Canadians, including vaccines, and I trust them to do that, uh, go through that process with the same rigor they would with anything else. Do we have long-term data three years from now about whether there are any complications related to this vaccine? We simply do not. But uh, that's the situation we're in. I'm not a vaccine expert, but most complications, least life-threatening ones from vaccines, would be seen, you know, in the first hours, days, or weeks from this vaccine being administered. We've had volunteers who have received this vaccine you know, many months ago. So we don't have perfect information. But if Health Canada approves this, then I would consider the vaccine safe and effective and much less risky than uh, subjecting yourself to the risk of COVID um, for sure. So, you know, I'm not in the business of convincing people to accept vaccines. I think everyone has to make their own choice based on the information available. But I think that people should make sure they get the information from reliable sources. And if the vaccine's available in Canada, then I would consider it both safe and effective
0: uh I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts in the united states uh speaking of numbers I think uh, today a, a new record with over 31 uh, 3100 deaths in the last uh 24 hours we've heard that uh, they're uh, rolling out the vaccines as quickly as possible uh, before christmas and and thereafter uh, how how will that impact? Uh, their situation once they because they're talking about mass uh, vaccinations and and boom getting this all out uh, with the first attack quite large a lot larger than what it will be uh, for example for countries like Canada Uh, how much of an effect will that have on them getting control of this disease
1: well their situation couldn't be much worse than it is now it is completely out of control I mean they've they have They've essentially let it get out of control, and unfortunately, politics has contributed to that. So, anything that can be done to help will help their situation because it will get worse. I think that you know the United States has the the money and the machinery and the resources to roll this out probably more quickly than than other countries, but they have you know well over three hundred million people and. Just to bring it back to vaccine hesitancy, you know, vaccine hesitancy hesitancy varies with GDP, and there's no higher GDP country than the United States, Uh, maybe, well, they're close to the top anyway. So I think that that will also be a significant challenge in the United States, because you do need to have a significant number of people vaccinated for it to have the kind of countrywide impact that, that I think you're speaking to and uh... and time will tell but i think that vaccinations will help but there's going to be a period of time in every country where there are a group of people who are vaccinated and a group of people who aren't which means that we can't necessarily remove public health restrictions just you know once vaccines start getting going or even are distributed to many people so we're going to be in this state of having to adhere to public health restrictions for many months to come
0: uh, so it's interesting you say once the vaccination does arrive, it's not a case of, uh, how long it will take its its attitudes towards that we you know it, we touched a little bit on the anti-vaxing uh scenario do you think it, it, with now having this pandemic in our generation it will make people make the anti-vaxxers look at this again i mean many have said that uh you know the whole anti-vax movement uh started when we saw a decline in these diseases that we saw like 100 years ago and if you ask our grandparents and our great-grandparents it'd be yeah get the vaccination now of course uh or up until COVID-19 we haven't seen that now we have been presented with a plague for lack of a better word do you think this will uh, refocus people's attention on getting vaccinated
1: you know Scott I don't pretend to understand what goes through people's minds when they make a Hmm. personal decision about a vaccine that's really not my place I'm really speaking to people who are more likely to be on the fence Uh, if you feel that vaccines aren't safer for you I'm not gonna be able to convince you otherwise but I think maybe a different way to answer your question is that you know, in 2020, maybe the way we view our neighbor and the person down the street and the person we don't even know is a little bit different than, than 100 years ago. You know, we need to have that community feel that I'm going to do something to myself or for myself that's going to help everybody. Uh, and if we all had that same attitude, we might be further ahead faster, including having the economy reopen. Uh, that 's just kind of a philosoph- philosophical way of thinking of it we 've become very focused on our own world and our own rights and etc. but uh, there is something we said for doing something for, this, for the betterment of other people, which I think, I think vaccination would fall into that category to some degree.
0: Here's hoping uh, post-COVID-19 we are more united. Uh, Dr. Michael Warner, well said, head of ICU at Michael Garron Hospital in Toronto. Uh, doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Please pass along uh, to your colleagues and uh, in in staff at the hospital. Thank you so much for all the hard work they're doing to keep everybody safe. We all do appreciate it.
1: Take care. Have a great day.
0: The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900-CHML.